0: another episode. I'm back with Ryan Kruger. If you remember, uh, Ryan has a financial advisory firm uh, that does all kinds of different financial management for a bunch of different clients with the planning and advising and uh, I guess in helping invest and walking alongside. So a nice firm that he has with a partner. And I want to put him on the spot and see what he thinks about baseball cards and football cards and other sports cards and memorabilia as an investment class. That is controversial in our industry. There are people that say it is not an investment grade opportunity. And yet the numbers don't lie that they've gone up dramatically. As long as liquidity is strong, the proponents of the investment philosophy have a good point. Thanks sponsors, Tops Media, Upper Deck, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, ComC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Hugging the Scott Auctions. I would say... Ryan, that you parlayed your youthful enthusiasm for sports cards into uh, a very nice career. So tell us what you do, and tell us how baseball cards and collecting provided some of the foundation for your for your business success and helping others.
1: Well, I I learned my love of statistics from the back of a baseball card, as we talked. That was that was my first job, and I still love statistics on the back of cards now called companies. They're both paper assets as a good lead into how your conversation, I think, is a lot more appropriate than most people would ever give credit to. You talk about what's tangible. I know a lot more people that have held a card than could explain the balance sheet of some of the stocks they're speculating on that are a lot less real, by the way. But I, frankly, as we talked about, lost touch with the hobby with a little business that I've been running over the past three decades and have only recently um, come back in for the same love with my sons to the hobby. But In looking back, Jim, the the parallels are striking. Supply and demand. The fact that that math just bid and ask leaves no room for opinions at the end of the day. I think all of the different behavioral recency bias, all of the different crowded versus uncrowded trades. We've got
0: a few minutes here. So uh, define both those, the recency bias and the... uh, What I
1: learned in that shop was whoever did something big that weekend, they might want the card on Monday, but was very unlikely to be predictive of the rest of the year.
0: So that's the recency. What have you done lately?
1: Yeah, and overpaying for that. Or, crowd, yeah, crowd trading, what about yeah, that? Yeah, or, or leaving something in the dustbin that might hold quite a bit of value. But to get to the heart of your question, after building a money management firm, as we have the, the quantitative system we happen to use is all statistic-based, we don't have opinions, we don't have predictions, we let the math dictate where the answer should be. If somebody asks me, does a card hold investment value? Depends on how you define investment, but if you are buying something for a price and selling it potentially for a higher price, whether you call that a trade investment or pleasure, money doesn't lie and bid ask spreads don't lie. So I think it's appropriate in terms of how, I guess I would look at it to get to the heart of what you're wondering for folks that wonder if this is real or not. I I have people that wonder the same thing about the stock market. So I think it's a very fair question. In my personal opinion, because you said perfectly, we walk alongside folks. I would only do what I personally feel comfortable with if I'm financially free to speculate on a card or a second home. Then I have enough and I can do that. If I'm going to over leverage or put nest egg or needed expenses at risk in the stock or baseball card market and speculate, then I can get myself in trouble. This year has been a perfect example. Companies, investors, or card collectors, if they're using scared money or if they get over levered, they could definitely run into a whole bunch of trouble. But it's not because of the card market or the stock market, it might just be using the wrong money.
0: Back in the old days, they'd talk about when the inflation was a little bit more, they would talk about setting aside, say, 10% of your. Portfolio for gold, a hard asset. But isn't art cards a proxy for that as a hard asset? And, and and again, I don't think we'd be so concerned about some of our uh, brothers in collecting if the the value of their card collection was 10% of their net worth. In some case, I think it's a lot more. But if you had 10% of what your of the money you had was in cards, that to me that would seem imbalanced. And if there's inflation, uh, the, the cards could ride that, and you could have some fun along the way. I don't think when we're talking about people getting in trouble with being overinvested in cards or in debt, uh, it's because they have
1: 10%. I think you're right. And I think so, there's data on whether it be art, wine, cards, that is extremely compelling. And you could hold it up against anything in stock and bond markets. I, the distinction I see, and I actually think your word fun is wildly underrated for the extra amount that you could put at risk in any one of those alternative asset classes. To me, and we're just hardcore data nerds on this, just like I was when I was looking at the backs of those cards. I, I want. To be, we, we calculate literally a financial freedom score. So once you have all your needs met, I don't think it's a percentage. It could be more than that if you've got more than enough that you need your in certainty. income of your. Certainty. you could you could have more than ten percent. It might also be less though if you're realistic. You just got to calculate your needed income first. But you're saying
0: you, you don't. You're agnostic as to whether or not it would be gold or art
1: or wine or sports cards. The distinction to me is what generates free cash flow and what doesn't. Anything that doesn't generate free cash flow to me is inherently speculative, including stocks.
0: Because the liquidity could come into question.
1: Absolutely. So okay. Okay. there's income producing and then there's speculation. Well, and those cards, two,
0: cards are not income producing. In fact, if they are
1: income producing, you're in business. You know, that's right. Business. So, so it would be in the speculative bucket for certain. Yeah. Which but doesn't get bad. I, I, that's exactly what I was about to say. That's not a negative. It's just a clear distinction. The problem people get into in the stock market or card market is they combine all that. They try to get... Their income and what they need out of their predictions and speculation. That's when people run into real trouble.
0: What do you do with the clients that want to be heavily margined? Are you a fan of that, or are you just are you conservative on that?
1: Well, that, we, this door has a lock on it, Jim. We, we don't. We choose politely to uninvite anybody that has the need for that. So personally, they're again, they're, they're trying to over-lever
0: their investments. They're they're not a good candidate for your service. Because, and there are,
1: there are plenty of great success stories that use yes. leverage. Perfect. I'm not one of them.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's fair. And so I mean, I'm mean, i of that uh, school of thought. It's, it, uh, you're going to miss out a little bit upside in the bull market, but you're sure going to be protected. It's a downside, and there's always a downside. Nothing goes up forever. You know, I don't uh, – what other parallels did you – like we're saying, supply and demand, the, the difference is we don't, it, with, a, with a stock, you can know the market cap of a, of a company. You can't really know the market cap of a, of a card because you don't necessarily know how many were produced. So ah, supply is a little more difficult to determine and that doesn't throw off cash. It's not the same as getting a
1: dividend. I think the biggest parallel where actually the aces from your industry have a leg up on a lot of investors in my industry, frankly, is that supply number. So the example I would use that I think most professional investors are still scratching their head at and don't think about of all the opinions and predictions. Again, just like I heard in the front of that baseball card store, well, trust me, I hear exponentially more on stocks and demand for those. Yeah. And none of them have calculated or done the simple math on since my career started in 1996. There are now half as many publicly traded stocks today. So the supply for a whole lot of reasons, a lot of them have been taken out of the public markets and are now private. There's now almost 500 billion dollar private companies. All of those used to have to go public to have access to capital. So there is now a significantly shorter supply of high quality to use the comparison vintage Mickey Mantle's in the stock market than ever before. And people are wondering and trying to predict when the stock market is all going to collapse and crash together. It's not going to because the vintage value and scarcity always hold.
0: But there's two different kinds of scarcity. There's a scarcity of how many are out there. And then there's a scarcity of what's in kind of like the float. What's really available because there's some collectors that are never going to, they're not even going to sell on their deathbed. They're they're never going to sell. Okay. So there's not all the cards that are out there. They're not all in existence even. So the ones that are, A lot of them are not for sale, so they're thinly traded, and that actually has the tendency to prop up the the market, doesn't it? Just like with stock, like you're saying, if there's less companies, there's more dollars chasing fewer companies.
1: Absolutely, and it's you mentioned that, and the parallel extends. A lot of the anxiety and confusion in the stock market over the past ten years, most recently, has been okay. There's fewer stocks than ever before, and the last ten years, the companies that are still around that have cash and that are healthy have been the only net buyers, taking shares off of the market. Private investors. Funds, individuals, families, they've all been net sellers. These companies themselves, because of so much excess cash flow, have erased more of the float. So there's not only fewer shares, there's fewer outstanding float of those companies. But that in effect is propping up the the value it, 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 in a sense. I think it's the hidden bid and the confusing aspect. People try to figure why in the world are stocks going up if the economy seems so uncertain and my politics are infecting my decisions and predictions. all these reasons. And it's everything else. It's, it's just like that baseball card shop when I was 13. It's all the things that people know that just aren't so that really get them into trouble. It's, if you stick to the math, you can do all right. A big wall of cards like you behind you. Are you talking about historical math or predictive math? I'm talking about the actual objective data, the math. The statistics on the back of those cards were real. They happened. Well, but the same that, thing,
0: last year. that was last year. A lot of the new statistics that some of the other podcasts talk about are predictive.
1: That's, and that's predictive. where I step aside. I'm, I'm well, sticking to the back of the cards, just the math of what is actually out there because math leaves no room for opinion.
0: That, I agree. But statistics is the science of decision-making in the face of uncertainty. And it's usually applied to a future event, which is obviously uncertain. And past behavior can be the best predictor of future behavior until it isn't. So I, I think what you're saying is that you're you're positive about the past and you're milking that and can be quite certain that's what happened. But as for what's in the future, you you can't know. You can make good decisions, but you can't know. In fact, even dividend paying stocks that have always paid a dividend, they do until
1: they don't. That's right. And so we're a slave here to the data of what is happening. And most people in our industry and and similar to yours spend most of their time on what should happen and what they think will happen. And you can follow and the red flags, I'd be curious what they are for you and supply the red flags for me on supplies. You will see companies try to match demand before the company or the math is real. And they will have an offering and they will sell stocks. And remember every time there's an IPO, that's the insiders, the companies themselves, but than anybody selling the sale. Sell, right.
0: Yeah. At a price. But even that's changing now because they're realizing this, this initial bump that they don't get up to, to participate fully in yeah, I think there are a lot of parallels there, but I think that, again, the reason we're having this discussion is because the buying and selling of stuff, stocks included, has been democratized and it's power to the people. It's no longer, a, these aren't ivory tower type experiences. It's There's day traders out there's people who can trade on their own and things like that. And how come we haven't seen more people like you in the sports card industry, you think, that are giving advice or doing, I, I think our magazine did some of that. But you're actually doing it on a very personal level for families and investors, helping them to, You're, like you say, you're walking alongside of them, trying to help them decide what's a good decision. How come there aren't more people doing that in sports cards? Or do you think that's what dealers are supposed to do?
1: Oh, I think that's a, an extremely interesting question. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if a few years down the road, we look back and listen to this tape and, and there's an entire new industry. That wouldn't shock me.
0: Well, already in the last year, there has been a dramatic increase in uh, fractional ownership strategies and uh, non, I don't know but non-possession, but there, in the old days, you either bought the card or you didn't. And if you bought the card, you had it and you might've kept it at the bank or you might've kept it in, in your home, but you had the card to show it to somebody. Now, not only can you buy something and let it be in somebody else's vault, again, not judging, I'm just saying that's now an option, or you can buy one one hundredth of the card in a, not a cartel, but in a, like a buying group, and uh, some of that stuff, I think, is now going to be SEC regulated.
1: You're right. And there's private markets, not baseball cards necessarily, although I think the line is very blurry and I can see it happening. It's becoming more and more accessible. And as you said, democratized, fractionalized. And I view that, and, and there will, of course, be a bunch of toxic speculation thrown in as a result. But I view that as a net positive. Anytime more people can find anything more accessible, it's an absolute net positive. What I think the the real interesting story and the thread to pull from that is and why I would be bullish on some of these private knee to knee, look at behind you. They can understand, they can talk about some of these businesses and opportunities. And whether it be going in and shares and owning a private plumbing company that ain't going anywhere and they've never known how to invest in something like that before and they thought they had to buy stocks, but now they can buy, invest privately where it's not just for accredited investors or something as simple as what about baseball cards or alternative asset classes like that for speculation, Or, as you said earlier, just for fun. If that's the downside and if you can afford to be wrong, that's a pretty good place to be. Fascinating
0: conversation. Ryan Krueger, thank you for sharing your expertise. Let me just close with one statement that you can agree or disagree with. But the good news is collecting sports cards and investing in sports cards is not easily scalable. The bad news is it's not easily scalable. And so I think we're still going to have a hobby slash industry because it's not easily scalable. And that's going to keep out this institutional approach and make it still partly a hobby that, that you get, You don't have the fungible one stock certificate is not the same as another. You know, we've got a 9.5 would... 9. as opposed to a 9. And then now we find out that not all 9.5s are created equal. The scalability or the lack thereof is an is important part of the charm of the industry and will make its knowledge is important. So let me just leave it at that.
1: I would call that good friction, right? Some of the best private investments throughout history, it's because you couldn't get out of them that you controlled your own behaviors. There is an added element of upside there. You're right.
0: Thank you for the ratification, Ryan. Best to you and your business. I wish you continued success. I'm not sure you're going to be recommending all your clients to get deep into baseball cards after this episode. But again, thank you for sharing. And thanks, listeners, for being a part of another fun episode. So be back tomorrow with another one. The Man-